Good morning. I'll be reading the Bible. I think we don't have it up there, so I'm going to call out the... We do? Oh, so we don't need the page numbers. No worries. Okay, we're going to be reading Mark 9, verses 33 to 50. They came to Capernaum, where he was in the house, and he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them, taking taking him in his arms, and said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name in the next moment, in the next moment can say anything bad about me. For whoever, is not, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Hey, my name is Benjamin, and uh, I'll be speaking about... That passage in Mark chapter 9, if you want to get uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 33 to 50 out, you're welcome to. You should all have a uh, Bible. I'd love it if you looked on and then later on pointed out where I've gone wrong. I'm not expecting that I have, but um, don't take my word for it. The authority is in the red book that's in front of you. Lining up in a queue is about the most frustrating thing I can think of. How about you? Line up in the queue to get into church? It's it's somewhat frustrating. You used to just be able to walk in. Lining up for fish and chips on a Friday night in January in Port Macquarie when everyone else wants fish and chips in Port Macquarie. Trying to work out if there's two lanes, like a traffic jam, which lane might be going faster? Five cars have just passed me in that other lane. Should I change into the other lane? And then I do, and then five cars pass me in the next lane as well. Maybe it's time for me to change lanes. Yeah, I'm in the slow lane. Why don't I just change lanes? And then the selfishness begins to kick in. Don't these people know how special I am? Don't they know who I am? Oh, I've got a plane to catch, a baby in the back. Oh, I'm too important, too busy to wait, too busy to wait in this traffic jam. I don't deserve to be in this slow lane. I don't deserve this at all. One of the most frustrating things about a queue is the fear that you are in the slow lane, the fear that you're missing out on the fast lane and its attractiveness, that someone has found a faster way while you 
are sitting with the engine stuck in idle. The disciples would not have understood that analogy about the engine stuck in idle, but they would have that same frustration, that fear of missing out on the fast lane to success, that fear that they were stuck in the slow lane and they were going slower and slower. Because the more they understood about Jesus' plan, the more they understood that their leader was bringing them with him to his death. If their goal is achievement and success, then why follow a leader who would be heading towards his own death, towards shame and humiliation and defeat? They had to be thinking that there was a better way to success, a faster lane out there somewhere. Today's passage shows a continuation of this FOMO, this fear of missing out, which has been growing in recent chapters. In chapter 8, Jesus had said he was the Christ, God's chosen one, and then he went on to tell them about how that means that the Christ must suffer and be killed, must be killed. Peter rejects such talk. He's convinced that Jesus is choosing the slow lane, And Peter is missing his chance at success. In the early verses again of chapter 9, Jesus again predicts he will be killed. But we're told his disciples did not understand and did not want to ask him about it. It seems they're reluctant to accept this idea too. Because they're hoping that Jesus would be their fast track to success and fame and fortune. But instead of promising a fast track to fame and fortune, Jesus is commanding more and more humility. Jesus points out three paths for the disciples to follow and the worldly assessment is that these paths are the slow lane. But what looks like the slow lane, it turns out, is actually the path to peace. If you aren't following Jesus... Today's passage is a good taste of what following Jesus should look like. But the only way we can make sense of this way of following Jesus, of what Jesus is commanding, the only way we can make sense of it is to look at how Jesus practiced it in his own life and in his own death. Jesus lives and even dies for others. And in doing so, Jesus shows us the right path. The path to peace. Let's look from verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. If I had a mind reading device, a device that exposed everyone's secrets by pointing it at them, would you let me point it at you? I don't need a mind-reading device to know that there are some things that you would rather keep secret. Some things that you'd rather hide. Most of us have something we'd rather hide, and the disciples do too, here in verse 34. Think about how the disciples were feeling at this point. They'd been caught out. They had silence, no doubt, from the profound embarrassment that comes from being caught out. They'd been arguing 
about who was greatest among them. It seems while Jesus is telling them that he's leading them to his death, his disciples are scrambling for some extra status, jockeying for positions of authority among the followers of the man who will soon be dead. Like us, they want the most recognition that they can get. But the disciples know that that's not what Jesus wants, not what Jesus is heading for, and so they'd rather not talk about that aspect of their nature. Jesus shows his preferred path in verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. And the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. We come to Jesus' first way to ensure you are on the right track. If you want to be first, that is, if you want to be really, truly successful... Have I got your attention? Then you must make yourself last. You must make yourself last. To emphasise the point, Jesus takes the child and has him stand there and takes him in his arms. Now, needy children might be a noble cause today, but that wasn't how it was back then. In fact, needy children are a noble cause because of Jesus' words in the passage here today. Back in those days, men didn't bother trying to help children because looking after children was seen as the slow lane. No success to be found in looking after children. No authority, no recognition, no fame, no fortune. Children just didn't rate. On top of that, compassion itself was viewed as weakness. Back then, subservience was viewed as a weakness. Humility was the slow lane. Jesus is training his disciples to be leaders, for sure, but his path of leadership is a path of humility, not authority. True leadership is nothing to do with your rank in the pecking order. The person who sees success as being the same as authority and command, well, they're choosing the wrong lane. They think it's the fast lane. It's the wrong lane. According to Jesus, it's the person who serves, who helps, who loves, who is demonstrating the leadership that God values. Yes, Jesus had authority, But Jesus didn't exercise his authority just for the sake of showing it off. Jesus chose to serve, to help. And that's how he showed his leadership. Jesus literally humbles himself. He does it here. He takes a child in his arm and he shows compassion. He says that looking after the little child looking after the least significant, looking after those who don't rate. That's the path that his disciples are supposed to be on. This is not an intellectual exercise. It's not that his disciples, his followers, it's not that we should just be ready to serve 
that we should think such service is a good idea. It's that we should really serve if we are following Jesus. It's how we show that we are following Jesus. That direction would have been pretty confronting to the disciples. And I have to say, in 2,000 or so years, the culture hasn't really changed in our society. When we hear about putting ourselves lower, about serving, about finding those who don't rate and looking after them, about not chasing fame, about letting others win, well, there's part of me that says, that's loser talk, man. Why should I give up my success so others can succeed? Why should I put myself lower than others? Why should I give up what I've worked hard for? Why should I give up what I've earned, my status, my money, my fame, my reputation? Yes, you know, I was on TV once. So that others can have what I worked hard for. Don't I deserve reward for my efforts Aren't I entitled to recognition? Don't they know who I am? Well, if anyone has a claim for recognition, it's not you, it's Jesus. Jesus is the king of the universe, but he didn't go around advertising it. Totally foreign to today's leadership culture, today's ambition culture, Jesus orchestrates his own demise for the good of his followers. Rather than claiming his rightful place on the throne, Jesus chooses humiliation. He does that because his neighbours need him. We humans might judge our merit by fame, fortune, achievement and recognition, but God judges our heart. And the judgment isn't good. God has found us guilty, liars, cheats and sinners, destined for death. We can't solve the problem of our sinful heart, our guilty heart. The only way to solve that problem is for Jesus to accept a substitute, another heart in place of ours, a willing sacrifice to trade his perfect heart for our guilty one. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus himself, who teaches here to give up recognition and serve those who don't rate, gave up his recognition as king to serve we who don't rate by giving up his very life. His humility brings us salvation, brings us life. It's only in the light of what Jesus did that we know that it's the right thing to do to follow him in this way. It's only in light of his humiliating death that his command to be humble makes any sense at all. Otherwise, it'd be hypocritical. But in today's passage, Jesus hasn't died yet. And so the disciples find this concept difficult to grasp. Why, you, you, humble? They continue to jockey for positions of authority. And so Jesus has to spend a lot of time explaining humility in the Gospels. Looking at my own nature, is it any wonder why 
He had to explain it again and again. The good Samaritan, the rich man and Lazarus, the sheep and the goats, the sermon on the mount, all commend those who humble themselves and serve others. And so Jesus shows his commitment to this humility, taking the place of a servant, dying for you and for me. Jesus, through his death, shows what he was teaching to be true and shows us the path to real peace. How do you go with chopsticks? Do you use them when the restaurant offers them or do you just laugh and push for the fork and knife? I read about an Asian politician, I won't name the country, but the politician said he was sceptical about the intellect of Westerners because they didn't generally know how to use chopsticks. And they didn't prefer to use chopsticks when the option came. And if they didn't know as a culture how to embrace chopsticks, then what hope did they have to embrace anything of higher intellect? How about that? It might sound odd to us, but it didn't stop there. The politician said that his country should be differentiated from other Asian countries because they used the right sort of chopsticks, the right shape of chopsticks, the clever chopsticks. It might sound odd to us, but, you know, we are pretty good at finding ways to exclude others from our own little club, finding ways to deny people recognition or authority. And the disciples make that same mistake here too. When they put others down to improve their own standing. From verse 38, Teacher, uh, they said, said John, We saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. The disciples are being called to a path of inclusion. The disciples have attempted to block a man from doing God's work. And why did they block him? Verse 38 tells us, because he was not one of us. The disciples had been so focused on their pecking order that John thinks it's a good idea to protect their top 12 status by not letting anyone else rise up. John has to own up to this other shortcoming in light of what Jesus has said about choosing to be last. Now, this man, this man who is doing miracles, given that Jesus has already met with and ministered to, taught and even fed thousands of people, it's quite possible that he already has thousands of followers. The man doing miracles is a follower of Jesus But it's clear that he wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't one of us, as John puts it. So the disciples saw him as a rival, someone to be stifled rather than a colleague. But he was operating in Jesus' name, and so the disciples should have embraced him as a brother, but there's not 13 disciples, you know. There's no room for this guy. He'd better stop. And Jesus corrects them here too. 
Whoever is not against us is for us. Because service to God is more important than status. You don't need a name badge to join in the service of God. I have this name badge not because I belong here and I want to show you that you don't, but because I want to help you remember my name so that you don't feel embarrassed. Maybe I should take it off. If that serves God, maybe I should. You don't need a name badge to join in the act of helping. It's like when those terrible fires hit us two years ago. Do you remember? People in shorts and thongs, holding buckets and garden hoses, were out there joining the RFS in their personal protective equipment and their RFS logo and their helmets and their boots and their tankers. What if the RFS guys said, no, you don't have an RFS logo on your bucket, so we're not going to accept it. No, you don't have an RFS logo on your shirt, so you can't help defend your house. That's what the disciples are saying. You don't belong to our group, and so you have no part in helping. That's a view that persists today, and maybe some of you are feeling a little conscious of that. Because we're often tempted to look for the Presbyterian logo before we value a person's Christian service. We're tempted to look for the fine print about denomination and denominational beliefs rather than look for the sign of the gospel. Jesus rebukes that temptation in them and in us. Whoever is not against us is for us. So a person who is living out their faith in the gospel, sharing it with others, well, we can support that person and consider them a brother or sister in Christ, regardless of whether they're from our church, whether or not they're from an evangelical church, whether or not they're from a Protestant church, whether or not they're from a church at all. A true leader is not worried about their authority being diluted. That's called growth. And if we're truly serving, truly humble, we should aim to grow the kingdom, to help people who don't rate know Christ, know the gospel, whether we get more recognition or not. If promoting another church is going to help God's kingdom, I say do it. If two churches are dying and one has to close to prop up the other so one can survive, I say that sounds like a good idea. Why should the two perish? We're about growing God's kingdom, serving, not seeking authority. We're about growing God's kingdom, not our own power base. Jesus knew that too. His death. The ultimate act of selfishness removed division from the Jews and the foreigners, allowing both groups to access God's kingdom. Through his death, Jesus proves that he knows the path to peace. And it is not about amassing authority for yourself on earth. But let's be clear as well about what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that everyone is for us. In this passage, Jesus explains that the most important thing is that the person acts in his name. That's not everyone. 
but it's certainly more people than can fit into our little church. So let's stop finding ways to divide Christians and instead find ways to unite and truly help our world unite under Jesus as King. Well, we're talking about leadership and as a child I remember having a giggle at a bumper sticker which said, don't follow me, I'm lost too. It reminds us, though humorous, it also reminds us that leaders must know where they're going, otherwise they're not much use. You might not think you're much of a leader, but put simply, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you know where you're going. And if you know where you're going, then you can lead other people too. You can lead people to Jesus. We're all leaders in one way or another, therefore. That's why what Jesus says to the disciples about leadership is by extension to all leaders. And so the following warnings of this passage are for you too. From verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. In this passage, Jesus is focusing on purity in leadership. His path is that of purity. He's talking to the original leaders of his new church, his disciples, these people who are supposed to be leading on Jesus' behalf, but instead are hanging back, jockeying for positions of authority rather than serving in the way Jesus wants. In this section, Jesus warns them and us not to get in the way of his gospel, not to lead other people into sin and, not to, and also to strive for personal purity. Jesus has strong words for anyone who would want to stray from his path of purity. He's not literally promoting suicide and mutilation. He uses these very strong terms to show the seriousness of the problem the seriousness of impurity. I mean, if he were promoting self-mutilation, this would run counter to the rest of what he says in the Bible. Particularly, remember not long ago, Jesus was ripping into the Jewish leaders when they were talking about how you have to wash your hands. That's so important. He was ripping into them about the uselessness of external Changes of external washing when the root cause of the problem, the human heart, was not sorted out. No amount of external hand washing will make up for a guilty heart. Well, if washing the hands won't fix the heart, then chopping the hands won't fix the heart. 
But that doesn't mean the problem is not serious. It's so serious that Jesus warns that impurity is the fast track to hell. Yes, hell. It's better to be humbled now to be in the slow lane that comes with trying to walk on one foot, to be in the slow lane that comes with trying to act with one hand. It's better to be humbled now and submit to Jesus because the alternative, chasing worldly fame or fortune, results in eternal punishment in hell, which will be more humbling in the long run than anything we could face here and now. And the importance of purity is reinforced when Jesus goes on to talk about salt. Salt keeps things clean. Don't have to tell people here in Port Macquarie about the importance of salt water. Good for the soul, the salt salt water is, people will tell you here. Well, if salt stops being salty, that is, if people, pure people, stop being pure, that's a mark against them that no amount of being pure again can change. Salt equals pure. Unfortunately, humans are like salt that has lost its saltiness. Without Jesus, we are impure and we could not repurify ourselves. It just makes no sense. We need Jesus to wash us clean, to make us pure. We can't do that. By ourselves. And so in verse 50, Jesus gives this command that wraps up this whole passage Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. It is the salt, the purity that comes from Jesus that brings us to peace with each other. That is, there is no true peace without Christ at the centre the centre of the relationship, the centre of our hearts, the centre of our lives must be Christ. There is no true peace, no true reconciliation without Christ at the centre. Peace is what contrasts Jesus' path with the fast lane of ambition that tempted the disciples. Remember when when we started this passage, what were they doing? They were arguing. They were in conflict as they jockeyed for position. They were trying to elevate themselves and it brought them conflict. Jesus' contrasting path of humbling oneself, of being lower, is exactly the opposite. But he offers peace. An end to that argument, an end to that conflict, Peace. Submitting to Jesus brings the peace and security that you cannot get through any other means, through any other lane. And it lasts for eternity. That's a path that continues long after the temporary rewards of ambition and success and fame have long faded. And for those who have the eternal peace of Jesus... There are no longer any rewards that you can gain on earth that match. There is nothing you can chase here that will match or exceed the peace that is offered in Jesus. So why chase them? 
If we want to be first, Jesus bids you focus on humility, on subservience, on inclusion, on purity. The very things that Jesus demonstrated in his life and in his death. If you want to be on a path to peace, that is the path you must follow. If there is a ladder of success, then you are to be stepping down, stepping off if what you're chasing is recognition. You are to be helping others instead. We humans practice a lot of things, but you know what? We are pretty poor at practicing losing. But that's what Jesus is calling for here. Practice. Practice coming down a rug. Practice coming down a step. Practice giving up your authority and its trappings for real help and real service. Humility takes practice too. It's just as much work as trying to win, but the aim is to become a resilient servant rather than the highest ruler. We are to seek humility just as Jesus showed serving others rather than jockeying for position. And if that lifestyle looks like it's in the slow lane, don't be fooled. It's actually the path to peace. After all the hard work is done, our reward will not be a throne on earth to sit on, but the satisfaction that comes from Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. In the meantime, as citizens of God's kingdom, it's time for you and me to start practicing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are poor losers. We are not practiced at it. Lord, we see authority and accomplishment as being the path to the fast lane of success. But you, Lord, here call us to cast that off and to serve and help, though it cost us our lives. Lord, please help us to have the courage to practice service and humility to put up with the shame and defeat, knowing that it is your path to true peace. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.